0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there.
1: Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. It's our usual Friday wrap, and I'm joined today by Pat Leahy and Jack Horgan-Jones. But before we do start, one last reminder that next week we're going to be taking an in-depth look at North and South, the collaboration between the Irish Times and Aarons, analysing and researching Ireland North and South. We're still very keen to uh, put your questions to the project coordinators, so please do send them to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. And do try and get them in in the next 24 hours or so by Saturday, February the 4th. And if possible, do send them as an audio file because we do like that. But anyway, to the, to the matters of the day. Uh, hi, Jack and Pat. Hello Hugh. Hi Hugh and Pat. I'm looking forward to the bank holiday weekend, of course, but it was a busy week. Um, Jack, so much going on really, but maybe this story which blew up on foot of a newspaper story last weekend about the uh, nursing home charges and the, the policy of successive governments in resisting attempts to make them pay for private nursing home care for, uh, for public patients essentially.
2: Yes, so the Mail on Sunday had this story based on a cache of documents they got from the now uh, famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, um, Department of Health whistleblower Shane Corr, previously seen in uh, RTE and the Business Post. who have done uh, exposés based on, on material that he has brought to brought to light. Uh, this particular one focuses on a, a legal strategy that the the state developed and deployed in uh, reaction to the legal risk, I suppose, of being taken through the courts by uh, people or the families of people who had uh, who had. Um, medical cards but uh, ended up in private nursing homes and ended up having to fund private nursing home care and um, the state's position is that it has no legal obligation to these people but they the difficulty they face is the nature of the defense that they constructed never actually sought to have that tested in the courts. And it seems that as and when cases were taken to the point of discovery, which is where document exchange occurs and, and usually is is one of the, the last stages before actually going to court, uh, or certainly in the latter half of the, the kind of pre-court uh, exchange of information, um, they would settle at that point. So the, the allegation, I suppose, on the first hand, from the opposition is that these people were illegally charged, which is something that the government um, strongly rejects. And indeed, one of the more interesting parts of this week's exchanges was a blanket defence of what the government and what effectively previous governments have done uh, by the Tisha Leiveraker and the all this week, who effectively said it was a good strategy and I do it again in the morning. Um, and then the other, the other charge, I suppose, that they're facing is that they have acted as uh, an overly aggressive defendant when being uh, taken to task by a plaintiff who most people would have a good degree of sympathy with. That is, you know, people who are in the lower uh, deciles of income, uh, as evidenced by the fact that they have a medical card, and are obviously in, in at a vulnerable life stage, as evidenced by the fact that they need uh, nursing home care, which is quite often uh, end-of-life care in Ireland. Um, so there, I think there, there, there's two problems that the government face here. On, on the one hand, you know, they're, they're, whether or not uh, the legal justification they have for their actions holds water throughout. And um, that will be tested in the first instance by a report that's being drawn up by the Attorney General, Rasa Fanning, which will be uh, brought to Cabinet next week and published thereafter. I suspect he will say, and in fact, my understanding is he has already given a strong backing at Cabinet last week, albeit an informal one to the, to the strategy so far. So, you know, they will, uh, I suspect, get a pass from him. Um, and then you know, the question is whether that is ever tested again in the future, whether a case comes to court, whether that kind of legal aspect is ever is ever challenged and whether that edifice uh, is is maintained. The the second and more kind of volatile one, I suppose, is the political angle and whether these charges that the government has um, acted in an indifferent or overly aggressive way to those vulnerable plaintiffs is one that sticks and how that kind of spins out over the next while, because I think we'll be ready to see uh, a whole host of people being trooped through the Oireachtas Health Committee following this and, you know, people will be really getting down into the into the detail on this and the risk as always. And I think that there's quite a lot of nervous politicians around because a lot of people have inhabited the Department of Health or the senior offices of, of government who would, it, it would seem, have signed off in some way, shape or form on this this um, strategy since it came into incarnation some point prior to 2011. So that's the other test of this. It goes in two directions, one, the legal and second, the political. And they are nervous about the political because I think in some ways there's almost the There's almost echoes of the cervical check uh, controversy here that it could kind of metastasize to something of that level. That's certainly the fear.
1: So, yeah, the, I mean, the legal side of this, Pat, seems relatively straightforward. It, you know, it may well be that if the state was trying for for many years to avoid discovery of documents so that other people wouldn't uh, successfully be able to take their cases to court, this will clarify this once and for all now. It's fully out in the open and we'll find out, you know, what happened and what might happen into the future, which might incur uh, very significant costs for the state in the too distant future. The political and ethical one seems to me to be more um, to be more confusing. It is, again, as Jack says, reminiscent of recurring scandals of the past where the the, the state um, treated in a miserly or meagre or cruel, arguably, way, particularly people who were uh, relatively weak. Um, and I do wonder about that. I do find the Varadkar defence interesting. You know, he raises that question, which is, I'm sure we'll get a lot of people's backup, but it seems to me to be a legitimate question, which is, should the children of tomorrow pay for the sins of their parents and their grandparents in this regard and be saddled with 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 huge debts. I mean, is that something that you can actually consider at all, or is that just outside the pale in terms of considering? Well,
0: it's the sort of longer term and philosophical consideration, Hugh, that we're very well used to on this podcast, but um, rarely feature in the decision making process in government, in my experience, where the imperative is to avoid the political shitstorm that may be coming down the tracks in the coming days. I suppose on the question of the state's approach that you raise there, there is, as ever, there's, you know, there's conflicting imperatives uh, for the government. Of course, any government has finite financial resources and has a responsibility, a broader responsibility, to safeguard, you know, the financial stability of of uh, of the country, and. It's worth noting that, you know, hundreds of millions or billions that are paid out in compensation are then hundreds of millions or billions that are not expended in the provision of services. At the same time, you know, this isn't the first time that we have seen this sort of, to some perspectives, uncaring or callous or... Maybe just short-sighted approach from the, and short-sighted and overly legalistic approach from the state in the face of claims which many people might view as as justified, and which certainly the protagonists uh, view as a matter of basic fairness. And I think you know Conor O'Mahony, the um, I think he's recent. He's a UCC legal academic and recently retired as as the government's special rapporteur on child protection, made the point in in a few Twitter posts during the week that I was quoting in an analysis piece that this is routinely how the state operates when it is faced by litigation from people who have rights under law or who believe they have rights under law. The state doesn't either front up a defence or it doesn't immediately cave and, uh, and provide the services or the compensation that is sought, it wears them out or it seeks to wear them out through a long and uh, drawn-out defence and then eventually settles with those litigants who have been either well-resourced enough or determined enough, and in some cases both, uh, to see the process to its conclusion. And I do think that there is something kind of from, uh, you know, from an equity point of view that is unsatisfactory about that. Um, same time, I guess if I am Minister for Health, I'm thinking I don't want, I don't want my budgets busted by, uh, by a series of claims for, for compensation. So I think there's claims that are justifiably competing here
1: but it's a system that favors the powerful and the well-resourced over the weak and the less well-resourced isn't it and people will then point to other situations in which companies banks other sorts of institutions have received redress from the state and you know and they will draw their you know quite justified parallels
0: yeah sure i mean i guess nobody receives redress from uh from the state without a pretty determined effort and often the redress that is then you know granted is granted after such a long period of time that you know it's unsatisfactory from almost all perspectives it's unsatisfactory from the point of view of current taxpayers to be saddled with a, a, a bill for you know historic inefficiencies or neglect by the state but it's also unsatisfactory from the people who get it at the end of the day i'm not sure what the answer is Hugh but your observation is certainly true that it's a system that doesn't favour, you know, people uh, without resources or without other capacities to pursue a fight against uh, the state over a long period of time.
1: Another phenomenon which may be an example of another way in which this plays out in Irish society is something that's really on the top of the news agenda now, Jack, and which you're going to be writing about this weekend. Which is the increasing level of protests against the housing of migrants and asylum seekers in particular, all over the country really at this point, in in, in various places in Dublin and in uh, provincial towns around the country. You were out at one of these protests this week?
2: Yes, I was. I went to uh, Finglas Garda station on Wednesday night uh, where there was kind of one of the biggest um Protests of this nature that has taken place so far. Uh, I was with our colleague Connor Lally who was there, and he he covered about four or five of these and he said it was certainly the biggest one and it was also uh the biggest policing reaction to it and um, one of the most striking things about it was for a crowd of maybe 200 250 people uh which never to my mind seemed like it was going to turn violent there was an overwhelming visible police force and also uh some uh specialist units held in reserve so you had 12 uniformed officers at one end of the road, four Garda cars with the blue lights on. Uh, at the other end of the road you had more Garda cars, in between you had four vans with um the public order unit in it. I saw in behind the back of the station it's a, it's a large station with a kind of courtyard and an enclosed area behind it. And I saw in that courtyard there were there were Kitted up members of the public order unit as well, ready to go if anything happened, and also there was an armed support unit vehicle a little bit further down the road. So it was to some extent, well, not a kind of you know, um, they were they weren't cracking skulls, uh, but like they were, as they, it was I, I I felt and the presence of the Garda helicopter overhead as well. I think validated that this was a bit of, a bit of a show of force of what the Garda can muster, which is interesting because talking to security sources during the week, they were saying one of the challenges the guards have faced in this has been the fact that these things are popping up like mushrooms and. they're are a real draw on resources. And so while they don't think that anyone, any of them are necessarily going to turn violent, just from a public order point of view or just from a, a, a traffic management point of view or whatever, it takes a lot, of, a lot of Garda resources to manage them. Now, that's the Garda policing part of it kind of looked after. What I thought was really interesting was the... The kind of inchoate and, and messy nature of what was being articulated, so you had speakers talking about everything from you know some of the kind of bogus quasi legalistic ideologies, freeman on the land stuff that we saw during the financial crisis, talking about the illegitimacy of the courts and you know how you could assert your rights to receive a statute in in the old Irish from a garda or else they couldn 't do x, y or Z, and these were some of the the ideologies being espoused and and then from within the crowd itself, a frustration. Growing about this and and at one point someone said, you know and i 'm paraphrasing you know we 're not interested in that choice you know there's we 're here for the immigrants, and that was said several times and 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 what I thought was notable was that the the sentiments that uh, provoked the kind of loudest and most uniformly positive or encouraging response from the crowd were those anti-immigration sentiments and talking to people within government and around government over over the uh the course of reporting this piece that's going in tomorrow there is a definite concern growing um about the the scale of this they don't think it's on the scale of the water charges protest but on the other hand they do point out that while the water charges protest was very much anti-government there's a wider sense of of alienation and anger towards the system writ large and that's something that i saw in the piece or in the at the protest as well on wednesday evening when Curiously, there was much more targeted abuse and, 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 and uh, slagging off of Sinn Fein than there was of the government. You know, that like, there were people up there talking about how Sinn Fein wanted to. You know, um, work to, towards a United Ireland under the crown. What exactly that means, I don't know. But like, it was just interesting that um, that 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 was a thread that that is being picked at. And I think that that's one of the overriding concerns that there's just this this massive, inco- kind of, but but very volatile anger building up there, and that there are, and this is the assessment of the security forces as well, that there are far right elements within that who are well positioned to manipulate and exploit that. And I think that you saw that in the fact that the The most coherent reaction from the crowd was when someone said something that had an anti-immigration stance running all the way through it. Um, and then playing out against that, and again, we have a lot of detail that I won't bore you with now in the piece tomorrow about... You can the, bore
0: us with it tomorrow, Jack. I'll
2: okay. bore, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll bore you on a Saturday. I've already bored you on a Friday. About just the level of, of pressure that exists to accommodate all these people as they come in. And we saw that with the front page story that Pat and myself had today with yet another desperate plea for vacant buildings emanating from Roderick O'Gorman, who now effectively seems to be at panic stations, you know, saying, you know, what have you got? Give it to us. We'll put mattresses in there. We'll put sleeping beds in there because they really are at a at a massive pinch point, which they claim is 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 at its most acute for the next couple of months. But again, when you look at the longer term projections, they're all the way out to December and we have the details on them tomorrow and they're pretty grim. I don't know exactly what solution there is available to them, but they, they really need to find one.
1: Yeah, today's story, Pat, that you know talks about community centres, art centres, anything that's available at all that has four walls and a roof. As far as I can see, Roderick Gorman is is looking for it.
0: Yeah, and I mean he's looking for he's looking for vacant buildings, obviously. But I'm not sure how many you know vacant sports centres, or arts venues, or uh, or conference centres, etc. There are out there, and you know, I mean Jack noted that there's a real air of desperation, I thought, uh, uh, about this letter, which has gone to other ministers who will pass it on to their, uh, you know, pass it on to their officials, who will pass it down the line to various sorts of organisations that are under the ambit of of each government department. But, you know, without officials actually going out and, you know, looking for uh, such venues you know, it's hard to see many of them being discovered. And, you know, I, I think we're really in for, uh, you know, a tough few months on this front, or rather the refugees themselves are in for uh, a tough few months uh, on this front because, um, as as you both noted, there will be nowhere to put them when they, when they come here. And I think we reached the stage now where, okay we're saying there's nowhere to put them and we need to roll up sleeping bags in uh, in in halls so they've got to find those halls uh, now and this is uh, this is what it's about so um and i think you, you know you're going into the officials would say yes the next few months it's going to be difficult uh, but uh, you know then we hope to have more temporary accommodation coming on stream modular homes and uh, uh, and so forth but but all the while people are arriving this is a um, It's a moving, not a static target. And I think there is a hope in official circles. I'm not sure I I would elevate it to the level of of a strategy, but there is a hope in official circles that if the situation is very bad here, that people will stop coming, that the numbers of people that are coming will, um, will, will begin to tail off and that will then enable the target to stop moving and enable officials to get to grips and the system to get to grips with the numbers that are that are there at the moment
1: which you know if you think about it isn't uh
0: it's not a brilliant approach really you know
1: no it is not jack one last question to you on this i mean i know you say these things are are popping up all over the country the, these protests uh, and this may be my my bad judgment call here but if if this was one of the biggest ones and it was 250 people, it's not that many people by the standard of, you know, demonstrations on other issues that we've seen in the past. Is there any possibility at all that we're that we're overstating the level of hostility that's out there right now?
2: Hmm. It's a good question. Um so I think we need to draw a distinction between identifying this as a a mass movement um of the scale of the most recent example is is the water charges, uh, and then the tax the tax stuff that happened in the in the late eighties. Fairly imprecise <laughs> description there. Um, I'll defer to some of my senior colleagues to be more precise as to what the tax stuff that happened in the late eighties was. Um,
1: you refer, of course, to the PAYE protests, don't you? That's George? it. Thank you very much. <laughs> In
2: the early nineteen eighties, Jack, before you were born. <laughs> Thank you. Well, there, there you go. You've offered my excuse for me. Um, so we need to draw a distinction between that and 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 what we're seeing right now. Um, I, I think I think that the difference is just the it's the frequency of these things. Um, the, it's the fact that they're so widespread. And talking to people um, TDs uh, who keep tabs on the emergence of these protests in their constituencies. They're saying that notwithstanding the kind of niche and to an extent comforting explanation that this is the product of manipulation by a kind of sinister fringe or the far right or whatever, which there is elements of truth to, they are seeing, you know, quote unquote ordinary people in there, mainstream people. They feel this is going mainstream and that it is, that there is a, an audience out there you know, that is at the at a bare minimum curious about what is happening. Um and that the the both the kind of on the ground outworkings of that be that whether a couple of lads leave a protest like this all amped up and beat someone up, or, you know, the more substantial political outworkings of this, whether this kind of sentiment is ever given a kind a voice, a parliamentary outworking I don't know uh you know the 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 radical fringes of of kind of most forms of politics have generally not enjoyed that widespread of parliamentary representation in the doll, but could that be something that emerges over the next period? I don't know, or is it just something that moves migration politics more to this more to the center of of mainstream politics? and I think that's where we're going to lie that's that that you know I was talking to some in the cabinet earlier on today, and they were saying this in the round, not necessarily, you know, the migration crisis or the accommodation crisis that is associated with it, but your migration policies are now going to be something you're asked about on the doorstep, which is something that has not really happened, I suspect, in about 20 years, if it ever happened at all. And that's where I think, you know, that's why I think this is important, both on the ground... The policing threat, the the lack of social cohesion, and the, the the threat to vulnerable people that may arise from it, and also how it kind of moves the centre ground of Irish politics and how it changes the issues that people care about and have salience for voters.
1: One of the things that's bubbling away in the background, Pat, uh, it's somewhat more esoteric, it feels in comparison to what uh, Jack's been talking about there, is the prospect of a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol and. Anything happened this week or is it just all rumours and whispers?
0: Just to add very briefly to what Jack said there to conclude on that, that subject is, you know, this is something that we've seen, you know, on immigration happening all over Europe. And um, we would be naive to think, you know, that there isn't a, a constituency that wants to limit very severely immigration uh, into Ireland here. And, I, you know, I think what we're in danger of now is that, you know, failures of Government to react to the situation with sufficient foresight and uh, and then scale and capacity will lead to an anti-immigration theme becoming part of our politics, and I think that is what that cabinet member was referring to. And I think we're pretty close now to the that particular genie being being left out of the uh, out of the box if it hasn't already got out and, you know, the kind of comforting myths that we've taught ourselves uh, in the past about the Irish being, you know, singularly immune to racism and this kind of rather witless, uh, you know, idea that, oh, you know, if you're, if you're a racist, then you're not an Irish person. I think we're about to be confronted with the um, the shortcomings in those particular analyses of the situation. On the protocol, talks are continuing. There was a story in the London Times during the week, which said a deal had been done between the EU and, uh, and the UK. And um, that was immediately greeted with um, a flurry of denials in London and in Brussels and uh, in Dublin. My sense of it is that, the, uh, that a deal is, is very close, that many of the obstacles... Uh, to a deal, have been overcome on the one hand by the EU's willingness to see checks, uh, uh, checks on goods coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland almost disappear in a in, in a practical sense. Not disappear altogether. This idea, you know, that there will be a an utterly seamless customs border between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland is not going to happen because Northern Ireland is will be subject to some single market. Uh, rules under the protocol. The protocol is not going to be torn up. I don't think it's even going to be rewritten or tweaked. Its, it's application will be and how it is enforced uh, will be tweaked quite significantly. On the other hand, it seems that the British... Uh, demands on um, you know the European Court of Justice and so forth are likely to fall away.
1: Sorry, Pat. Can I just ask you that that second point, um, the one about the European Court of Justice? Yes, we are told that that is you know led to believe that that's the thing that might actually spark a a serious rebellion, for example, in the Tory Party um, among yeah. the European Research Group or whatever, because these core principles, as they see them, of sovereignty regained, um, can't be impugned by something like that.
0: Yeah. uh, And this is the question that I have uh, about it. And again, I'll be writing in tomorrow's paper about this. I'm not sure that Sunak, Rishi Sunak, is strong enough in his own party to force through a deal that will, like all compromises, not give uh, lots of people absolutely everything that they want. And there is a. I I think there's something of an optimism bias uh, amongst many people in, uh, in, in involved in this that you know because all sides want to deal they think that a a deal will be done and um, I I I think we will find out a lot about Sunak's strength in within his own party in in the coming weeks because if he is going to conclude a deal uh, then he will do so you know over the objections of the ERG and what happens to him then and what happens in that process of gaining the assent of his own party on it, and that's before we get to the DUP at all, um, then I, I think that is pretty uncertain uh, at, uh, at the moment. So, uh, so while there's a lot of optimism around about a deal being done, I have some questions uh, about what happens then.
1: Before we wrap things up, Jack, uh, we each make a choice of what we thought was a particularly striking uh, story of the week in the Irish Times. What's your one? So, our
2: colleague uh, Cliff Taylor uh, wrote a good piece this week about the post-COVID reshaping of the city centre which uh, is something I find very interesting. I I walk across Dublin City twice a day on my way to to Glensdale House and back uh, to the north side Um, and Cliff has kind of parsed over, you know, the the changing streetscape that he sees uh, around him, and and you know how retailers are, are changing, and how the city centre is is or isn't changing, and the good or the bad or the indifferent changes that have followed on from the pandemic. Um, which is something that I uh, I, I tend to think a little bit about just on my on my strolls around the place as well. You know, what wh- what's your perception? I see
1: a place in decline. What do you? think?
2: I, I just I agree to an extent. Like I see a place that is kind of has a bit of a an identity crisis, or at least. A, a a crisis of proper strategic planning. You know, like it, it, Dublin City Centre feels to me like it's just terminally less than the sum of its parts. You know, there's there's good parts to it, but none of it seems to fit together as a whole. And there's there's these kind of gaping, uh, these gaping problems that have never been addressed. I, I I grew up, um, not like I grew up in in the, the north of the city uh, until I was about fifteen, and you know, the 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 chronic problems in and around where i spent my formative years on on Garden Street in menton square are fundamentally unchanged from the 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 late 1970s when my parents bought a house there you know it's it's deprivation um, that was made worse by by the tide of the heroin epidemic in, in the 80s and now uh, it seems to be kind of in, entrenched. Um, and so, uh, sorry, th- that, that's the, the wax lyrical about Cliff's piece. I mean, the real, piece, the real reason I really like Cliff's piece is because it strikes me that um, he literally just stood up on the third floor of Tower Street at the Irish Times building with his notepad and ro- wrote down what he saw and, <laughs> <laughs> and cracked a column out of it, which <laughs> the Irish Times is <laughs> often criticised for only reporting what happens in Dublin within the canals or perhaps within the m 50 but he literally just wrote down what he saw.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I've generated at least three columns about uh, the kind of massive building site actually, which which exists across the street from the Irish Times at the moment. So you so it can always prompt a couple of ideas if you're you know if you're feeling a bit short. But well, well, I have a con- slight like confession to to make that I was you know reading um,
0: some of the reports of what was happening in in London during the week and. I wrote a highly uh, abusive and I think entertaining uh, paragraph about the European Research Group and the Tory party. And then to preserve that, I just constructed a column around that. So readers readers can judge. I suppose tomorrow what they what they think of
1: that. Okay, um, Marks mark, Marks out of ten for our readers. Before I ask you what your what your article was, I'm gonna just gonna briefly say my one. Also also rooted on the third floor of the Irish Times and the features department, which as um, uh, some people will know is a kind of a is a repository for decaying aged journalists we are sort of the mishavishams of the of the Irish Times, you know, scratching away with quills on Vellum there on uh, on the arts. But we do have one younger member of staff who had been away for a while and he came back. His name is Connor Kaplis, and he came back with a multi- Haircut and a little fuzzy moustache as well, and he's written an article about the the reaction to that. Um, I, I'm actually quoted there, but if not by name, because. He looks very like, to me, very like the, the famous West German uh, footballer, Rudy Voller, ah. um, who won the World Cup in 1990. Although some people made less kinder comparisons. I think German porn star was mentioned, uh, member of the Stasi. A lot of German stuff going on going on there anyway. Anyway, I think it's great. Big Teutonic vibes. Yeah. For somewhere like the, the very aged features department to have a young person who has actually figured out a way to horrify older people, which, uh, which Connor has successfully managed to do. It's a very entertaining piece. Pat. Well, in a
0: in a similarly weighty fashion, I don't pick uh, one one. Individual article. Uh, I pick uh, the entire week's coverage uh, of the uh, Six Nations, which is uh, starting tomorrow. As so listeners will uh, will know, and I've been uh, reading all of our uh, stuff by Jerry Thornley and his colleagues um, uh, very closely. It's one of my favorite times of the year. I like the Six Nations almost as much as I like the Monster Hurling Championship. It uh, starts tomorrow, so uh, don't call me for the next few weeks.
1: Grant, I like the Six Nations more than I like the Monster Hurling Championship, so I'm I'm just as happy, if not happier, than you. In fact, I've got a sn- I decide about about Munster in my column tomorrow but you'll have to go to the Irish Times to read it and of course don't forget that in order to do that from a digital point of view anyway it's a good idea to sign up to subscribe to the Irish Times at irishtimes.com slash subscribe we will leave it there for the week thanks to Pat and to Jack to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon we're going to be back very soon it is a bank holiday so do enjoy it and see you after that